Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Uh Hi, everyone. I'm Susie White, a product innovation coach, author and podcaster in the food and beverage industry from Melbourne, Australia. Today, I'm talking with Ryan Hartshorn. He's the co-founder, director and head distiller at Hartshorn Distillery. It's a Tasmanian micro distillery that's the first in the world to make boutique batches of vodka and gin from Sheepsway, a byproduct from their family business, Grandview Cheeses. In this episode, you'll hear how Ryan and his family ran the Grandview Sheep Cheesery for 13 years before Ryan bought a copper still off eBay and, against all odds, learned how to ferment and distill sheep's way into vodka. Ryan's persistence paid off with his second batch of sheep way unfiltered vodka winning the best varietal vodka of Australia for three years running and winning the world's best vodka at the World Vodka Awards in 2018. And in the aftertaste section, you'll learn how to build a moat to defend your food and beverage products and business against competitors. Welcome to the podcast today, Ryan. Thanks for uh, having me. Let's set the scene now for the listeners. How do you describe what you do in the business, Ryan, and what your business does? Yeah, well, thanks. Well, uh, basically, we're down at... um picturesque southern Tasmania where um, we're on a 60-acre sheep farm, a dairy sheep farm, where we're overlooking the Dontracasto Channel. So we've got lovely ocean views. We're in a beautiful part of the world. But essentially, we are also a manufacturer of all things sheep. So um, we go do everything from looking after the animals, grazing on our paddocks, to milking them, to making cheese, and then also besides the cheese, making um, some great spirits and um, sort of skincare products. Wow. We are going to dive in detail into all of that today. But first, Ryan, what's your current role in the business? So I'm one of three directors and founders of the business. My role's changed to mainly focusing on the distillery side of the business. We still do general operations. A lot of my focus is building the whole distillery business itself, getting out there around Australia, helping sort of build the brand, get people sort of aware of the product and and trying to be the face of the business. So it sounds like just an amazing place to own and operate a sheep farm in and also to be the manager of a distillery. I'd love you to take us back to the start of this business and walk us through what did you start with? Basically, we've been running for about 16 years now. So way back then, Tassie was a totally different place. Um, We moved down from Queensland to essentially start, uh, it was actually a winery way back in the day. It was going to, we planted some um, vines in our front paddock and my uh, mother was thinking what what animal can sort of eat down the grass in between the vines and went through sort of the idea of ducks and geese and what can we do with them and then the idea of sheep sort of popped up and she said oh well I'll just I'll just get dairy sheep learn how to milk them and and make cheese so uh, she flew to Europe and learned from some of the best and um, uh, we built a cheesery on site a dairy um, and then 
uh, started making our own sheep cheese and then opened up a tourism outlet so that people could come and, and try the products and see the see everything being made from start to finish. So that was definitely the the beginning. And we did that for about 13 years. And we had the predicament that we could only make a certain amount of milk because back then, you know, it's not like a, a cow dairy week or a cow cheesery where you can just sort of click your fingers and you can have cow milk delivered to your door. No, no one was milking sheep back then. So if you didn't do it yourself, you wouldn't get any milk. So we were sort of limited with the amount of milk we had to obviously how much product we could produce. And that was a real problem for us because uh, we had basically four family members working seven days a week and getting paid less than minimum wage for 13 years. And and I'd actually, I, I finished my degree in um, in business that was specialising in uh, marketing and entrepreneurship. So we were sort of, as a team, able to sell 100% of what we were making direct. So there was no middleman. We were making as much profit as you could, but still it, it, we weren't getting paid anywhere near what we wanted to. So I thought after 13 years, I said, this is, uh, this is enough. I, you know, this is not the life I wanted to be leading. And, you know, I was seriously contemplating quitting, going and working somewhere else, um, which is never a good idea when it's a family business because it sort of really leaves the rest of the family in, in the crap and um, you don't want to do that to family obviously so I thought I'll try and be proactive and and think how can I how can I sort of create a business of my own that that not only is enjoyable for me to do but how it can sort of help um, the core business which is sort of sheep milk or sheep products um, and how they can sort of relate so I have this real thing where I'm pretty big on eBay where I, uh, I, I buy a lot of junk that I don't need. And uh, essentially from that, one of the odd purchases was a very small copper still. And really that triggered the idea for me that maybe I'd enjoy learning how to distill and, and you know, make some sort of spirit. And back then this was this was about six years ago. There was no one teaching anyone how to distill. So uh, I had to basically try and think how how can I train myself. Um, and so I went online, as everyone sort of does, joined a lot of online distilling forums, and I would just work all day, get home, read from you know six till midnight, just online forums, trying to read through all the um, the general chit chat and figure out how to um, how to distill. So I did that for twelve months, and still getting paid less than minimum wage. I was able to find a a modular still design. So modular stills is obviously that it's it's, it's you can buy just a certain section of the still. You don't have to buy the whole still in one one go. So um, I was able to save a bit of money each week, buy one part of the still, save a little bit more money by the next part eventually building the distillery off my own personal income with no no input from the, the business itself and ryan what are your family saying or, or thinking at this stage that was still looked upon as you know this is just ryan mucking around it may or may not lead anywhere so that's sort of how it started i was just following what i'd read and what i'd learned i'd read a lot of textbooks as well trying to get as much sort of input from different experts as I could 
And then it was right at the end of that learning period that I read about a place in Ireland that was experimenting with cow whey. And the whole time during this learning, I was thinking, how do I make a distillery relevant to a cheesery? You know, I don't want to just make a milk liqueur or, you know, that sort of thing's been done before. Um, I wanted to really try and do something different and innovative, which is really what the core thinking is with a lot of the products and what we do in our business is a lot of it is how is it innovative and how is it helping the environment or how is it helping society? So that really resonated with me when I could, when basically I could think, well, obviously I could use our way, our sheep's way and, and ferment that into alcohol. I just didn't know how. And I contacted the Irish crew and said, how are you doing it? And they basically said, you know, get stuck. We're not telling you anything. Oh, no. So much for getting help from fellow food entrepreneurs. That was that was difficult. Um, and I don't have a science background. But luckily from our, our cheese contacts, we have a cheese labs in Australia that do our independent cheese testing. Um, and I was able to talk with them and work through some ideas and figure out what yeast and enzymes might work. Basically figured out how to crack the protein molecules and um, sort of ferment the lactose sugar that's in the whey. And the beauty of, of the whey is it's still not taking any um, product away from the cheese itself. So it was literally turning the waste from our cheese making into alcohol. In Australia, 80% of whey that's produced is wasted. So it just ticked a lot of the boxes for us, but then it was still a question of, will the spirit be any good? That is an amazing 16 years of ups and downs. You mentioned transitioning into one of the few Tasmanian sheep farms and cheeseries and dairies, but actually, Ryan, what happened to the original grapevines that you planted? Why aren't I talking to you about those? Sorry, yeah, I skipped over that. So in Europe, they often put sheep in between the vines to eat down the grass to keep the grass under control. The little detail that we sort of neglected to listen to is they only put the animals through the vineyard during winter when there's no actual leaves on the vines themselves where we were having our sheep run between the vines 24-7 all year round so the sheep essentially de-leafed the vines they ring barked them and essentially destroyed the whole vineyard so that sort of threw that whole idea out of the out of whack but also uh, the cheese was doing so much better than the wine ever could, so we really had to make the decision on our property to to pull out the vines. We hand-planted eight hectares, and then we by hand pulled it all out. And if anyone's had any experience in uh, vineyard work as part of your listening crew, they would know how painful that is to literally pull every pole out by hand. Then there's wire, there's three wires on each one, and then there's three vines, and then there's growth tubes and yeah so it's it's a lot of work um but uh it was definitely the right decision ryan i come from a family vineyard so i know that is backbreaking work and i am feeling your pain there <laughs> so you decided to go with making the cheeses from sheep's milk and what makes your cheeses so different from the other types of cheeses that are available the product sells itself very easily so sheep's milk is to generalise is the healthiest milk you can get your hands on because it's triple the calcium of cow. There's monounsaturated fats so that anyone that has cholesterol issues, it's a healthy fat 
anyone with allergies to cow milk, you find your 98% um, chance you're okay with sheep. To give you an example, you know, a lot of people see goat milk as, as a low allergen milk. Um, 60% of people that have cow milk allergies are okay with goat, but 98% of people are okay with sheep and buffalo. So it's a really good quality, low allergen milk. But on top of that, the other benefits is its flavor. So being super creamy, so it's got almost double the, the milk solids of cow, which means basically double the cream. You get a super creamy, thick, dense cheese or yogurt or whatever you're creating. Um, but also you don't get an animal taste to it. If anything, the flavor is very similar to cow, but you're getting a lot creamier product and a, and a lot higher quality. So anything you make from sheep's milk, is one of the highest quality things you can make, but also the healthiest. The negative is that it costs 10 times more to make than a cow product. So the issue we were having was when you've got a product that costs 10 times more to make than cow, the Australian market were only happy to pay about double the price of cow. So 20 sheep dairies have gone bankrupt in Australia over the last sort of 25 years. It's very hard to make a business financially viable from sheep products. Is that because it's so labour intensive or is it more about the type of sheep and their maintenance? It's all about the, the animal's input to output ratio, I guess. So the amount of food the animal has to eat for how much milk you get from it that's basically the economies of scale. So simply you need 30 sheep to do the same amount of milk as one cow. Okay, so this helps to explain your range of cheese products. Looking at them, they're, they're very premium, they're very gourmet, and they look like they'd be very much at home on quite a sophisticated cheese platter. Was that a deliberate choice around the positioning of your products? Exactly. Like we didn't have economies of scale. We weren't the biggest sheep's milk producer in Australia. So we weren't able to go to market with the best priced yogurt or the best priced feta or anything like that. So we we made a conscious decision not to make the cheaper cheeses or the cheaper commodity products because there was so much being imported from Europe as well. And you just can't compete with European prices. So we thought, no, we'll leave that space and we'll, we'll target the high end person that wants to have that barbecue at home with that you know impressive cheese platter for their friends so we went through a a lot of learning curves where we did choose to go through distribution all around Australia and we sold everything we made but we still lost money so it was we were like this is this is ridiculous to to be sold out of product and have nothing to show for it And is that just because of the retail price points? You just can't get your return on the cost of goods in making the product? Yeah, exactly. And and there were small margins that just got eaten up really quick on the farm. And so we we said, no, we're going to sell everything direct at retail. So we started to look into our farm tourism outlet. But then we actually, the hardest thing, the tourism in Tasmania, You only had about a best six months of tourism and then winter was very dead. It's totally different now. We're getting about 10 months of tourism, which is fantastic. But we were thinking, how do we keep cash flowing in the middle of winter? And that's when we got on to a lot of the food shows around Australia. So a lot of those food shows 
were all done, you know, through that sort of winter period. And so we'd just go on the road and try and sell cheese direct at these shows, um, which really was a, was a great move and really helped us sort of the finances sort of ticking over 12 months of the year. I just love that you tried all these different distribution channels and just kept coming back to making this a feasible business. And let's talk branding now. The name you're using for the cheeses is Grandview. Very clever use of the name with the Grandview spelt E-W-E on the end. Who came up with that name? I came up with the name and it was the first reason for it was because we have a fantastic view, a grand view where we are. But this was way back in my early marketing days, so it was it was um, before I had much uh, experience in this sort of thing. But every every business director in our family, our initials are in the name as well, in the wording of Grandview. So it kind of was a way for us to bring the family together into the name. But then my mother came up with the idea of the pun with the EWE. So that sort of further tied in the... Um, the products to the name. So you've been running the cheese business for 13 years. You've set up the dairy, you've set up an on-farm shop. Now let's go back to that moment, maybe three to four years ago, when you were at the point thinking, I'm going to have to leave the farm and go get an office job. But instead you buy a still on eBay and tried to work backwards how to make vodka out of it. So how do you make vodka out of sheep's whey? Because those two things sound incredibly different. Yeah, it, it hadn't been done before. So there was a lot of unknowns. Almost everything in the setup of my distillery was either a first or an unknown. So there was a lot of risk in me thinking it was am I making the right choices Uh, have I gone down the wrong path and I didn't have a mentor that could sort of keep reassuring me and saying you know you're on the right track or you know that's that's going to work well so a lot of it was just trying to have confidence in my experience because a lot of the the same market that buys you know the high-end cheeses it's still the same market that I would be hitting with with the booze so that, ex- that 13 years of experience definitely helped me with positioning, you know, any future product that I was um, wanting to develop. So doing experiments, and all these experiments were not with whey. It was it was doing a regular vodka, you know, it was doing it ways that other people have done it, which is things like filtering the spirit at the end. And it, and it did taste like, you know, any standard vodka, which wasn't that exciting. Um, and I was trying to also think, you know, I always try to, instead of just having one point of difference, I want to go for about five points of difference. It just really helps your product to sort of safeguard it for the next 10 years into the future when all the competition starts coming in. That was sort of definitely in the front of my mind as to how do I, I need to make sure I'm ticking all these boxes of what's going to make a successful product. Wow, Ryan, you really do set yourself some high standards. Most people would have thought simply being the first in the world to make vodka and gin out of sheep's way would have been enough because that in itself is quite difficult and unique. Yeah, yeah. And to put it pretty simply, protein is whey and in the protein is a complex sugar 
and complex sugars will not ferment into alcohol. And that's the problem. That's the difficult part. Basic sugars like sucrose, fructose, they're a basic sugar that it's quite easy to just add yeast and get the right temperature right and it'll ferment into alcohol. What I'm having to do is change a complex sugar to a basic sugar. Um, It's about seven variables that determine whether your whey will ferment. And that was the hard part because all the literature said you just do it this way. But it still wasn't fermenting for me. And that was so frustrating because I don't have a science background. So I just kept going, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know what the next step is for this experiment. Um, And even the cheese lab scientists, because this wasn't what they'd ever done before, they couldn't help me with, you know, how about you change this or how about you change that. So I tried different things. I tried to do the scientific method where you just, you do the same thing, but you change one aspect. You do the same thing again, you change one aspect. So you eventually figure out what was the missing piece. Went through that over and over and over. Eventually had the eureka moment to what's the ultimate sort of combination of all things. I made my first batch um, and it was actually the second batch that won Australia's best vodka. So that batch from this little 50-litre still helped generate more sales, which then helped me buy bigger distilling equipment. So it sounds like there was quite a lengthy period of trial and error. And Ryan, where were you doing this? And how long did it really take you before you got to that successful second batch? Yeah, so our cheesery is a three-storey building. So we have a basement at the bottom that's kind of dug into the earth, um, which was designed that way for our cheese maturing rooms so they could almost be like in Rockfort where you have the cheese in the caves and then the second level is the cheese factory and the cafe where people can come in and try the cheese and the third level is just accommodation at the top but down in the basement that was the only place in the whole building that had spare room for me to do what I was doing so I just sort of got myself a little space in the corner basically in our basement which has now progressed into taking over the whole bottom basement and outside of the basement and now we need to look into much bigger digs. (laughs) This really does make you sound like a bit of a mad scientist working away in the basement. Yeah, in the dark, no windows. It's time for a quick break now to thank our sponsors. When we come back, you'll hear from Ryan Hartshorn of Hartshorn Distillery how he decided to present his vodkas in a truly unique way with a bespoke bottle and handwritten labels. I'd like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible, the Monash Food Innovation Centre. They can help you fast track and de-risk your new products in the Australian market or export markets like China. Did you know that only one in 10 food and beverage products survive the first year of launch? That means nine out of 10 fail. If you'd like to be one of those businesses that gets it right, then the Monash Food Innovation Center can help. It has cutting edge technologies, product development services, and runs capability workshops to upskill business owners and employees in the art and science of food innovation. Whether you're a food startup or a large corporation, check them out at www.foodinnovationcenter.com. 
and see how they can help grow your business through innovation. Welcome back. We've heard so far from Ryan Hartshorn of Hartshorn Distillery how after much trial and error, Ryan successfully came up with a Sheepway unfiltered vodka. And that vodka went on to win the best varietal vodka in Australia for three years running and claimed the world's best vodka prize at the World Vodka Awards in 2018. And so I asked Ryan just what makes his vodka so special. Most vodkas, as you might know, have been marketed to you as triple distilled. You know, um, what that means is that's the more neutral the spirit is. Um, where my spirit is not neutral at all. I actually went the opposite theory. And back then, no one was thinking of vodka in this way. So I thought, why make something from whey, something that's so different and interesting that no one's heard of, and then make it finish, the product finish and taste like everyone else's vodka. So I really wanted the character of the whey to come through to the end product. And so by doing that, I had to change you know, everything I've learned with the distilling methods, but then making the big choice of to not filter my spirit. Um, a vodka that is unfiltered is a lot more interesting to taste. There's a lot more character to it. For example, I tried a four-year-old Polish vodka that was made from potatoes, but every single potato, every single vodka that they did was a particular type of potato. And you could smell and taste the difference for each potato as you went through these vodkas. And this is sort of a level of vodka experience that, uh, unfortunately, Australia just hasn't had a chance to experience. But it's such an impressive spirit um, when it's unfiltered that I really wanted to sort of try and do that sort of thing. So when you try my spirit, you will smell sweetness of the milk on the nose. And then when you drink it, you're going to get a creamy sort of texture. It's still a vodka, but it's got a vodka with character. So it's definitely more of that sort of sipping type spirit. But all this was kind of like hadn't been done before. And again, getting back to my point of I was a bit nervous of wondering whether that's going to be well received. Is that what people want? Um, I was really just doing what I liked. And then and then it was the question of what, what is the what is the bottle going to look like? Yes, let's dive into that because we do know in the alcohol industry, having great shelf presence, standouts, and a premium positioning is super important. So firstly, how did you decide what to put your vodka in and also what to call it? The name of the distillery is probably my laziest effort because I I couldn't really be bothered thinking of anything. So I just took the selfish route and just named it after my surname. So Hartshorn is my surname. I think it came a little bit from where I wanted to have my own, forge my own identity of what I, I can create in a business and also because I couldn't think of anything better. Oh, it's just such a good fit. Hartshorn, Sean She. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a really deliberate choice that you'd brainstormed and carefully curated that name. Yeah, uh, so I didn't even think about the puns in my surname. It was so, so silly because until a few people pointed out that same like yourself, because someone took out three different three different relevant things to my surname. So they, they, they said Sean as in sheep. They also went the horn part as in the horn on a, on a sheep. 
But then there's the word art in there too. Um, so they said the art for the actual bottle work that we do. So I thought that was quite interesting, someone pulling all that apart. Oh, yes. Companies pay brand agencies thousands of dollars for clever names like that. I know. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's actually almost the theme of my business too. There's been a lot of calculated success but also dumb luck as well. You know, and a lot of that actually ties into the bottle design. So I was going to do a prohibition-looking bottle where, um, you know, it was that dark, amber, tall, you know, traditional-looking thing. And I was going to have a deer as head as my logo because I just really love deers as the animal. And then I thought that's a bit silly to have a deer on a sheep product. So it eventually changed to a ram head. But um, the bottle changed because... It was basically came down to my own market research where I thought every distillery, every whiskey company is doing that traditional sort of bottle. Even vodkas back then were were fairly traditional. And I thought there's a real chance for me to take that sort of young, modern, edgy sort of angle with the bottle, but I didn't want it to look cheap. It's very hard to be young and edgy, but also look impressive or appeal to a great range of age group um, and that's something that's been I've been very fortunate that everyone from 25 years of age up to 65 are proud to have that that design of bottle on their bar but the whole reason I wanted the bottle to be black was again no one had a black bottle in Australia but uh, my goal was to create a product that you, the first on to be the first vodka that you that was selling retail for $100 and no vodka was anywhere near that price six years ago. And I thought this is coming back to my business degree is, is you learn perceived value. You can essentially charge any price for any product, but the catch is you need to make sure you've built in the value into that person that is buying it and that, that they're more than happy to pay that whatever amount it is and feel like they've had a good deal. Or it's, a, or it's a good price. So I couldn't just stick a label on my bottle and say, yeah, you know, and, and not win any awards and go, oh, there you go, that's 100 bucks. The most expensive whiskey back then from Australian companies, uh, you might get the signature of the distiller on there or you might get someone handwriting the bottle number and that was it on a label. And I was like, well, I'm going to take it to the next level. I want, I want to handwrite every single bottle and I want to hand paint the entire bottle so that when you buy the bottle and if you had never met me, at least you can hold the bottle and go, you know, Ryan's actually touched this. Or, and not so much about me, but the, the distiller that has made this product has personally touched this bottle and now I'm touching it. And that, there's that connection. And you can't get that from a label on a bottle you know that that could be just anyone sticking that label on there but an actual handwritten thing you know the handwriting style of the person that's doing it so you know whether that is authentic and no company could actually paint the bottle black for me so um, I wanted the bottles to hopefully be pre-done and then I would just write on top of them but it just wasn't possible because you had to order many many shipping container loads to have any any company happy to do it so I said, stuff it, I'll do it myself. So if you know the bottle, what it looks like, there's a little window at the bottom. We put masking tape around the bottom of the bottle and then we spray a white base coat and then a black top coat over the top. And that 
it's over about a three or four day period, depending on how quickly they're drying. And then it takes a whole day to, to write about 120 bottles. And that's one batch. So that's one day of distilling for us. So it went from me doing the entire thing, my actual batch one, if anyone ever gets their hands on it, I think it was only 50 bottles, but I hadn't had time to actually print a back label for my bottle. So I actually hand wrote the entire back label as well. So that was, that was a point where I was like, no, Ryan, that's, that's too far. That's, that's way too much work. <laughs> I didn't realize you were hand writing all of those. I mean, looking at the bottle, it looks like that black matte chalkboard paint. And then on the front, you write in kind of funky capital line sketching style, the brand name and the vodka type. And so it, it actually is hand sketched. Yeah, so that's actually paint that I still buy from Bunnings. The first batch as well, I didn't even do an undercoat. And when I sold them, my first complaint was um, the paint started flaking off. And also, I didn't even think that people were putting the bottle in the freezer. And obviously, the freezer absolutely, you know, rubs on ice, just ripping through the paint. Uh, and then I learned all about primers and undercoats. And so uh, from then on, it was it was all fine. It all holds up well in, in freezers and everything. Who knew that your job as a distiller was to understand paint primers and how to paint bottles? Yeah. Well, you get your first sale by what the bottle looks like and you get your second sale from how good the actual spirit is inside it. So everyone to this day was still like, that's that's ridiculous, you can't hand paint them forever and that just gets me wound up to and determined to make sure it does stay forever. But it also, as I was touching on earlier, it's a barrier to entry. It's hard for someone to replicate that. You know, you won't get the big companies able to replicate that. And if you notice, my logo is actually on the back of the bottle. So it's pretty rare that people would hide the actual logo because I wanted people to just have the memory of my bottle. So what was the most important thing was to make it very simple on the front and tell them what it is and leave it at that. That's why on all my products it just says Sheep's Way Vodka or Sheep's Way Gin and Tasmania at the bottom. And that's it. And to this day, most people that buy my stuff probably don't even know that it's Hartshorn Distillery, but it doesn't matter. They know when they go to a bottle shop, they go, oh, it's the black bottle that's the sheep stuff. And straight away people know what it is. So. Um, I bought, and I still use today, the Posca pens from Officeworks. So that's what I use to write the bottles. But the design was, again, a bit of dumb luck. The vodka part, which is quite a thick, large word, I wanted to find a thicker white pen to just do a thicker line, basically. Um, But Officeworks didn't have that in stock. So I only had, I could only buy the thin one at the time when I was experimenting with the style I wanted to do. So I said, oh, well, I can't pick it up just for demo reasons. I'll just go back and forth and, you know, make it a thicker line with a thin pen. And then I just sort of stood back and looked at the um, at the actual designs. Like, actually, that looks really cool. So the whole wording of vodka where it's that sort of scribbly back and forth sort of style was just came through dumb luck. And that's really, again, added to sort of the branding and the style of the product. Let's talk about the range then, because you mentioned the gin. 
When did that enter the scene and what prompted you to make that product? It was actually our last product that came into the range. Um, I was toying with the idea of just being a vodka company because there really wasn't a lot of Australian vodka on the market. So I really wanted to take that as what we did best. So after the vodka, I actually did the oaked vodka, which was closer to the sort of spirit I like to drink, which is more like a closer to a whiskey. And even before all of this, we have been doing a whey liqueur, which is fresh whey with vanilla bean and, and alcohol. So the gin, it took me a little while because, you know, the family were saying, you've got to do a gin. Everyone loves gin. And even four years ago, I think when I was thinking about it, or three years ago, gin was already flooding the Australian market. And I thought, no, nah, I think I've missed my chance for gin. Um, I don't know if that's what we want to be. But then I thought, you know what, let's let's give it a go. And, I, and I'll, I'm still not to this day much of a big gin drinker. So I was thinking, geez, I need to now create a product that I'm not even a, a big drinker of. And I won't release a gin unless it's something really interesting that no one's done before. So the first thought was, I only wanted to use Tasmanian native botanicals. I was able to work with um, our neighbour who is actually very um, very well versed in the world of native Australian botanicals um, and he pointed me towards an Australian flower and an Australian sweet grass that no one had really used before and they were both amazing and those are the two botanicals that I've got in my gin that are the most dominant of all the other botanicals so when you smell my gin you'll smell floral notes first then you'll get a little bit of sweetness from the grass then you'll get the lemon myrtle coming through so sort of floral sweet zesty but I was really strict on making sure that whatever I bring out is at its best quality from the beginning so from a distilling point of view I do I make gin the most difficult way which is distilling every single botanical on its own so what that essentially means is instead of running your still, let's say, over two days to make one batch of gin, I have to distill 14 days to make one batch of gin. So um, that's how I wanted to start it, and that's still how I'm doing the gin to this day. Now that you've got this range of vodkas and gins and liqueurs, what's your distribution like? Are you selling from just the farm distillery or are you into other retailers as well? Yeah, we're in every state of Australia. I think Dan Murphy's approached us within six months of being a business, which was a shock, but sort of been sort of balancing that between them and, and these sort of smaller bottle shops. But we're running the still seven days a week now. We make 120 bottles a day and, and they're all sold. So at the moment, we're running seven days a week and we're, in, we're just not even quite keeping up with the demand. So we're in a position right now where we need to build a bigger distillery and get bigger stills and start trying to handle things a bit better. That's fantastic. And in terms of you and your family, it sounds like this side of the business, the distillery, has really helped provide a balance and de-risked your whole business. Is the distillery now your major growth focus? Has it outpaced the cheesery? Yeah, it has outpaced the cheesery. Um, and sometimes the, the cheesery now is making cheese for the distillery, as in certain cheeses that I want for the way. But it's also given us a good direction with our business as a whole. We've realised what works for us, what works for 
you know, the, our customers and it's given us confidence to move into other areas knowing that we, we know a solid business formula for launching a product. But a lot of things have happened, you know, in a short space of time for the distillery that it, it, you just can't plan for. Like Qantas approaching me and wanting me as their brand ambassador because of the spirit, because of the story of the sheep and the cheese and everything. You know, KitchenAid wanting to get on board. A big Facebook influencer called Nas Daily, who has like four million followers, he just by chance came across what we did and did a did a video on it. So there's been a lot of press that you just can't achieve unless they find you interesting or in, or want or want to be seen to have their brand associated with yours. So I'm very very fortunate that that's happened and I don't I don't put all success down to what I've done it's just been also you know standing on the shoulders of others and 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 a lot of that also came through but the vodka last year won world's best vodka in London so you know so I've won Australia's best vodka three years in a row and when you win Australia's best you then go into the final against every country of the world's best product and then you win world's best product for your category and then you go the next level up and win world's best product of all categories um, and that's what I won so that was the basically the highest level you can get for a spirit and in a very prestigious awards show in London and that's what all the Tassie you know whiskey guys um, have been winning as well which has been great but that was a life goal that happened in the first sort of few years of business which I was quite shocked but that again really helped give the brand a lot of stout and a lot of people sort of starting to listen to what what we're doing and um, so there's there's been a lot of elements that have come in to help with our success it's not just sort of it's not me it's not any one thing it's been in many many that is just such a fantastic achievement considering what you have already gained and the collaborations and the partnerships you've formed how high is up for Hartshorn Distilleries? And are you considering export, for example? Yeah, I still think we have a lot more work we can do in Australia. Export's definitely a thought, but um, at the moment we want to focus on really owning Australia. You know, one of my goals at the moment is to be regarded as sort of the top three white spirit producer. So um, Four Pillars do do an amazing job in Australia and so does Archie Rose and and I want to be up there with those guys as you know in the top of mind of, of people when they sort of see the, the best of Australian spirits I want to be up there. That is an awesome ambition and Ryan something I always ask my guests is if there are people out there wanting to start up or run their own food and beverage business what advice or words of wisdom would you offer them? The best way to start a business is stay in your full-time job that you've got and do your little project on the side. Start selling it in a little local farmer's market or a craft market. See if it goes really well there. If it does, then you take the next step, which is maybe a pop-up shop. And then if that goes really well, then you start considering, you know, can I make more money than what my current nine-to-five job is? And really keep it low, low financial cost to you or commitment, I should say, as best you can, because you can do a business where it's just you 
or your business partner, but as soon as you start employing staff, that's when it really kills you with the costs really start coming in big time. Yes, I love that advice to look before you leap and test the water before you commit everything to a new business opportunity. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Ryan. It's just been amazing listening to your startup and continuing business story. Hartshorn Distilleries is clearly growing superbly and I wish you every success in the future. Thank you very much and thank you very much for um, yeah, choosing to interview me. I'm very uh, honoured. Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Ryan Hartshorn from Hartshorn Distillery and reflect on a key lesson from today's podcast. And there's just so much I could talk about here like the Hartshorn family's resilience and adaptability when their sheep ate their freshly planted vines and the family had to pivot from managing a vineyard to running a sheep cheesery instead. Or what about Ryan's determination to constantly look for ways to improve sales channels and profitability of their cheese products in order to support the family members relying on the business? And of course, I've got to highlight Ryan's courage in leveraging his business and marketing knowledge to persist with a truly out-of-the-box idea to ferment and distill sheep's way when no one else had done anything like this before and there was no blueprint to follow. Businesses like Hartshorn Distillery remind me of one of my favorite quotes from Seth Godin, irresistible is never easy or rational. And so today, I'm going to focus on Ryan's persistence that borders on obsession for points of difference in his Sheepway vodka. Do you remember when he said, instead of one point of difference, I always want to try for about five points of difference. It really helps to safeguard your product for the future when all the competitors start coming in. While you might think that's just Ryan making things really hard for himself, but his success in creating Hartshorn Sheepway vodka beautifully demonstrates the principle of building a moat to secure your product or business against competitors. So what do I mean by that? Well, according to Investopedia, the business concept of a moat was popularized by Warren Buffett, the successful American business magnate, investor, and philanthropist. He coined the term to describe the companies he was looking to invest in when he said, in business, I look for economic castles protected by unbreachable moats. In this business context, a moat refers to a business's ability to maintain a competitive advantage over its competitors in order to protect its long-term profits and market share. Using the analogy of a medieval castle, the moat serves to protect those inside the castle from outsiders. In the business world, a moat refers to your points of difference or competitive advantages that allow you to provide a product that may be similar but unique to those offered by competitors in a way that allows you to outperform and be protected. So today, I'm going to talk to you about how to build and maintain a defensible moat for your food and beverage business. Because one of the basic givens in any business or category is that over time, competitors will erode your competitive advantage, usually by duplicating some elements of your product or by creating a better offer that supersedes yours. 
Now, this is especially true in the food and beverage industry. It's a relatively straightforward thing to buy a product off the shelf, taste it, look at the ingredients, and then emulate the recipe, the packaging, the design, or the product claims. So the way to prevent this is by building a moat, not as an afterthought, but as a priority when you very first create your product. Because when you're up and running and your product's in market, it's just so much harder to stop and hastily erect a barrier and dig a moat once the battle with competitors in the category has begun. So how do you build a moat? Well, you heard how Ryan did this. He created multiple points of difference from the start in terms of product features. He started with a premium and unique byproduct, Sheep's Way, that's hard to source and comes from an authentic, credible, clean, green area, his family's sheep cheesery in Tasmania. He then added value by working out how to distill in a unique method of production that was really an industry first. He challenged industry norms around taste by making an unfiltered vodka that retained the flavor notes of the sheep's way. And don't forget, he chooses to paint and handwrite every bottle himself in the ultimate act of craftsmanship by a distiller. So the secret here in building a moat is creating new value. This means you offer consumers something they have not been offered before. And this is real value in the eyes of your consumers. So think of them first. If your product can do a better job at providing consumers with perceived value than competitors, then asking them to pay a premium is not an issue. That is your moat. You make a unique, high-quality product that can charge higher prices because you provide higher value. The second way to build a defensible moat around your product is by building a recognizable brand. Fighting it out with your competitors on features and price is exhausting, and it can be a race to the bottom in terms of who gets to the lowest priced first. A much better opportunity is to grow a brand that becomes your consumer's first choice. Scott Bradbury, a marketing executive of Nike and Starbucks, said, A great brand taps into emotions. Emotions drive most, if not all, of our decisions. A brand reaches out with powerful connecting experience. It's an emotional connecting point that transcends the product. And I like to use the analogy, if your product is like your body, the physical representation that people see and touch, then your brand is like your spirit. It's the intangible personality, mood, beliefs, and attitudes that shines through and brings the product to life. Building a unique, memorable, and evocative brand will help you have the first choice brand advantage that will protect your business as it transcends your product. The bespoke black bottle look and feel of Hartshorn Distillery products, the association with high-end spirits, the Australian and global awards they've won, these all help build consumers' perceptions of a high-quality, recognisable and valued brand. That is their brand moat. The third way to build a moat is through speed. Be a moving target. The food and beverage industry moves fast. Every year, there's new ingredients, new claims, new brands as consumers' tastes evolve and new preferences emerge. Don't be a one-hit product wonder and assume that your first successful launch is all that consumers will want or need. Instead, be constantly looking for how could you expand your portfolio and increase people's repertoire? 
What else could they buy? Or increase their frequency of purchase? How much could they buy? Ryan did this successfully with the expansion of his product range from vodka into gin and sheep liqueurs. And he does this by promoting and collaborating and cross-selling with other high-end items like Grandview cheeses and even the merchandise they sell like gift boxes, clothing, DVDs and glassware. And the very last way to build a moat is all about increasing size. While certainly being a bigger company helps to manage cost efficiencies and scale, it can help secure your profitability and fend off competitive threats. For small startups, don't overlook your size within a niche market. In terms of size, Harchorn Distillery is still a relatively small fish in the world vodka industry, but it dominates the Sheep's Way product category and it extends well out beyond this to punch above its weight in premium Australian spirits. See if you can find ways to be the best and biggest in your category niche so you're the first to mind and purchase for consumers. As always, I love hearing from you about your businesses. Do you have some competitive moats that are currently under siege? Are you moving quickly, adding value and building a brand to defend against these? Feel free to give me a call on the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast hotline. It's 613-88444-823 and leave me a message. Well, that's it for this episode. Many thanks again to my guest today, Ryan Hartshorn of Hartshorn Distilleries, for sharing his inspiring business story with us. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe, tell a friend, and join me for the next episode to eat, drink, and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. 